This is Anna, producer at Secure Sessions. We wanted to tell you about our exclusive sponsor and top-tier VPN provider. IPVanish has been a great resource for all of our digital security needs. Now our listeners will have access to great benefits including lightning fast speeds, a secure no-logging policy, easy-to-use apps for all major devices, and much more. Go to IPVanish.com and enter promo code SESSIONS to receive 20% off any plan. Welcome back to the Secure Sessions podcast, sponsored by IPVanish. With me today is Jim Killick, Executive Director of the Open Rights Group in the UK. Thanks very much for speaking with us, Jim. No problem at all. So you live in a very interesting space in the UK. You actually, at this point, have very much the rights of internet users on many fronts under discussion at this moment. So just tell me a little bit about what's going on and what the public debate is like. Well, public debate, to be honest, is hugely distracted at this point. Um, you know, I, I have to be honest. Uh, what most people are thinking about is things like the uh, exit of the UK from Europe, potentially, which is taking people off their, their minds and attention off some very, very big internet issues. The obviously the big thing that's happening on inter, in internet politics, if you like, is is this whole question about internet surveillance and what the government should or should not be permitted to do is uh, having bulk collection of data uh, simply permissible. Should the government be allowed to hack into people's devices? Should they keep everybody's telephone and internet records for access by the police? You know, these are the things that are proposed in the um, investigatory powers bill. But unfortunately, as I say, right at this moment, people's attention is, is pretty distracted. So we're having a quite a hard time getting people's attention uh, onto what are, you know, really, really critical issues. Well, I think certainly in our U.S. politics, we've seen uh, the politics of distraction as an incredibly effective measure to slide erosions of rights in under the, under the radar. So this is, this is the bill known as the Snoopers Charter, Yes. Yes. Informally so. Um, And uh, a a whole number of things uh, are, a whole number of things are uh, controlled and regulated by this bill. Uh, uh, As you said, including uh, surveillance, retention of records, internet records. And, you know, it's interesting to note that in the UK, you guys are several decades into a level of surveillance that um, I think is only sort of more recently appearing in the rest of the world. For instance, uh, the ubiquitous CCTV for local police, uh, how long has that been in place? We're talking almost 20 years, yes? Yeah, I mean, it, re- it really started uh, proliferating in the 1990s, and it has become very, very prevalent now. And it's used for uh, many things, um, you know, obviously uh, for street surveillance, um, but also, uh, you know, there are things like automatic nameplate recognition systems for cars. And we were just uh, seeing today uh, or yesterday revelations through freedom of information requests showing some 300,000 requests going through that system a year uh, to identify particular police, uh, you know, for particular people for the police. And um, something like 20 billion images being kept on that system, uh, which which is just an extraordinary amount of information. Um, that's really happened with 
very little debate. Um, but, you know, the problem being that uh, the principle of CCTV has been very, very hard to challenge. But of course, we're going to get an entirely new system um, of, of CCTV developing in the next few years. It won't just be passive data collection as uh, these things are now, you know, that they have to go and um, examine the the cameras individually, get, get the data from particular cameras individually when they want to look at it. And the next set of these devices will be networked. The dev the storage data will be um, there for, you know, processing. So uh, facial recognition and so on will start to kick in in the next generation. And we're starting to see these systems proposed in, in, in different uh, councils. But of course, it is, you know, it just is that much more dangerous. Well, one of our favorite themes here is that, uh, you know, there has to be a pragmatic approach to security and privacy, but also that uh, at the end of the day, people are still people. Uh, I recall reading five or six years ago a transparency study on UK CCTV showing that on an hour-by-hour -hour basis, the most popular uses of those cameras were to chase groups of teenagers around and prevent them from assembling and to look at pretty girls. And that on an hour-by-hour -hour basis, that was how most uh, local constables were using the data. We're using the, the surveillance. <laughs> that really doesn't surprise me. I think a lot of this is, uh, you know, often surveillance is um, most useful for the state where the, you know, purposes are pretty trivial or, or irrelevant ultimately. Um, but yeah, I mean, minor crimes um, are obviously going to be a lot easier to deal with through CCTV than than serious ones, though the things that people uh, are most concerned about and why these things are justified is always is the very serious crimes. It isn't the uh, petty misdemeanors, which, as you say, are probably the major use for use case for these sorts of technology. So give me a sense of uh, what the UK internet user experience is today. By way of comparison, in the States, I purchase an internet connection, and from that, uh, I am permitted to see pretty much everything on the internet, um, depending on what I do with that connection, per, for instance, what files I transfer. I might get a nasty letter from my ISP warning me, but uh, it seems as if that's not the experience uh, with, you know, for instance, a UK cable modem today. So could you sort of elucidate for those of us in the States, what's the, what's the, ex what's the base internet user experience today and uh, you know, how is it likely to change given uh, some of the new provisions in the Snoopers Charter that are being discussed? Yeah, so I think the, the, I mean, there are two kinds of internet connection that are being censored particularly heavily um, at the moment. Um, I should say it's treated differently for the different sorts of internet. So um, if you think about your mobile phone, that's kind of the worst. You signed up, you sign up for a mobile phone internet connection, um, you know, smartphone contract, something like that. And uh, as soon as you use the internet, um, you you might come across randomly blocked websites from time to time. You you will certainly uh, not be able to easily accept uh, find. Um, pornographic websites, they'll be blocked. And when you come across one of these, uh, one of these uh, blocked websites, whether it's a, a mistake, let's say it's a sexual health uh, website or um, 
maybe um, somebody start selling lingerie, um, as we found uh, recently. You know, these things are blocked as pornography. Um, and a, a little warning will come up and say, you know, if you want to have access to these websites, then you need to um, you need to uh, give us your credit card details or come into the to a phone shop and uh, provide identification and we'll take the blocks off. Um, so how specific do you have to be about the blocks? Is this are people having to telephone or show up and describe their, uh, let us say, interests in person? Or over <laughs> over the telephone to a to another human being. Um, that that can happen. I mean, the, the, what what normally happens is people uh, pay a refundable pound, you know, like like a dollar or so for um, to to prove that they have a credit card and therefore are, are, are over eighteen, and then the block is lifted. Sometimes you can change the setting uh, on your uh, account if it's um, you know. With your, with if your mobile provider is uh, sophisticated enough to give you that, um, you don't necessarily have to sort of tell people face to face that no, I want the adult material. Um, I think the the problem, I mean, the, the problem with this is that most people don't switch it off because uh, you, most people are not using their smartphones to uh, look at pornography, so they just end up finding every now and again some random website that really is not pornography uh, is blocked. You know, of course, people are entitled to uh, you know, view pornography and they shouldn't have to tell their provider that that's what they're doing. But I think the number of people who use smartphones to access pornography is, is not that great. It's not the normal way of accessing that sort of adult material. On the other hand, um, with fixed line provision, we're getting the same sort of setup creeping in. And this is, this is quite bad. So what's happened now is two of the providers um, will just censor the internet broadly, not just adult material, but things like um, uh, extremism, um, things that are uh, related to alcohol, um, maybe things that are um, hate speech or uh, maybe things which are related to self-harm, all of these sorts of sites are blocked by default. Now, it's easier when it's your broadband connection at home to change the, the settings. They're, they're much, much, much easier for users to interact with and change the settings. But it is wrong to be just switching these things on by default for users um, because, you know, they have to go to some effort to switch them off. Not everyone's going to uh, be bothered enough to do that, and that will prevent some websites from being accessed. Um, that, that seems to me just a very wrong thing to be doing. It doesn't mean that everyone's suddenly um, suffering from huge amounts of internet uh, being censored. It's more that the websites who are publishing material that's maybe erotic rather than adult, uh, maybe it's dating you know, it might be a number of things, those people are losing their audience. You know, some of those people are going to find it very hard to reach their users and customers. And sometimes it'll, again, just be an entirely random kind of website. You know, somebody making, you know, we've had things like secondhand car dealers getting on these blocked lists. Well, there and are some not... secondhand car dealers I do feel deserve some punishment. <laughs> 
but do they really deserve to be labeled as pornographic? I mean, this is the question, isn't it? And we, there's kind of a sort of even a question about whether these people are being defamed in some way, you know? Sure. Well, now, so as, even in your print media there, you have a, a, I don't know if it's tradition or legal framework for restraint on publication on certain topics. Are we seeing, are we seeing the ISPs uh, being approached the same way that newspapers are to, uh, to prevent uh, discussion or publication of certain things? Or is the internet still remaining freer than print? Well, it is freer than print. I think the thing is that they are viewed like broadcasters by the government, not not by people, but by the government. And the government kind of sees them as an easy target. You know, some something's bad. It's on the internet. Let's blame the internet companies, whether that's ISPs or people like Google and Facebook. Sure. And you know, they they just they just like hitting them because, uh, you know, if you can blame. As they did a couple of years ago, they blamed Google for facilitating access to child abuse images because it was theoretically possible to locate um, child abuse images through Google search terms because the search terms were not censored. Um, you know, they, they can say, well, Google is responsible for child abuse um, and they must stop it. And, you know, guess what? Google did uh, go and start censoring search terms um, in order that it might, uh, you know, you know, get rid of these these absurd claims. But the government at no point in any of that uh, identified whether people really were searching Google to find um, underage um, images. They they did it in order to uh, essentially get publicity for themselves. They hadn't really understood whether there was a harm. They just wanted to say that they'd solved a problem, whether that problem we've, was real or not. We've absolutely seen the same dynamic in the States, that uh, that child, uh, child pornography, child sexual abuse imagery has been used as, uh, it's been used as an excuse. It's the one thing no one can possibly argue against, but it's used mm. as an excuse to drive all manner of filtering and censorship provisions um, it's it's used to prove that such things are possible so that people can immediately turn around and say, well, now filter all the things that I have a commercial interest in you filtering. Uh, so yeah. it's, uh, it definitely, uh, sadly, is being, exploitation of children is being used as a debating tactic uh, in sort of warfare between industries, between uh, content industries that want everything they've ever thought of protected forever at extremely high margin, and uh, internet industries that want to operate in a fairly free environment with free discussion and things like satire and discussion and fair use, which uh, are not necessarily yeah. approved of by the large content companies uh, consistently. No, no. And I mean, it's, it's, a very, it's a very bogus argument, this as well, because really uh, you, have to, you have to try to tackle the criminality that's behind the distribution you know whether that is organized criminal gangs who want to sell this content or whether it is uh, organized uh, groups of individuals who are sharing it between themselves whichever kind of activity it is there are you know routes to deal with it uh, but none of those are to do with blocking and censorship they're simply uh, not relevant uh, you know, to, to tackle these things because you're talking about as I say, either 
criminality, which is about uh, illegal, uh, you know, gathering of money, money laundering, um, all of those activities, which are, uh, you know, they're, they're, which are, which are quite normal for criminals to to engage with and quite detectable. Um, the only interest they have in child abuse images is to con people out of money, essentially get money out of people. Um, and you know, whatever else they're facilitating, it is essentially about profit. And then those other people who are sharing it between themselves out of their own uh, interest, again, these, pe- these are people with a problem um, and they do need to be, uh, you know, they need to be contacted by the authorities and the police. They need to actually be um, helped as well as uh, punished potentially. It depends on who they are. Um, what precisely they're doing, but it needs investigation to actually contact those people and, and deal with them appropriately. Trying to censor the material in both cases doesn't address the problem. The criminals are still there. They're still making their profits or the uh, pedophiles are still sharing the images and are not being either punished or uh, helped to deal with their problems. So, you know, it, it really is essentially brushing the problems under the carpet and not addressing the problems that the victims are facing. That's right. Well, we and so wait, wait till everyone's dead. Wait fifty years and then go after them all. Right. I think that's the the pattern mm. we've seen. Uh, so, all right. So as we move to the Snoopers Charter world, does any of this censorship aspect of uh, internet connectivity become worse, or is it more about the back end surveillance surveillance that's happening? Yeah, the the, the um, investigative powers back, uh, bill is about. Uh, gathering information, keeping it, using it for surveillance, facilitating that. Uh, there are some uh, potential impacts on users' experience coming down the line um, and also for companies. The first problem is that as things stand, the powers of the state to compel companies to hack customers uh, and to interfere with their um, digital equipment and so on is pretty arbitrary. And it's very, therefore, I think it's going to be quite difficult for foreign companies to trust UK providers if they're offering security tools, for instance. Right. So if we if we look at all the revelations of Glenn Greenwald and the Guardian and Edward Snowden and uh, a bunch of the machinations of GCHQ that were that were exposed, is this is this sort of building a retroactive legal framework to say the things we've never admitted to and always been doing are now okay? Uh, or is this to expand yeah. even further? Mostly, uh, mostly it's retroactively giving permission for all the things that Parliament was never told about and we never voted for and parliamentarians never voted for that. Now, you, um, your UK, <laughs> GCHQ has built a huge correlation engine that's terrifying. Its name escapes me. I think it begins with a T. So, yeah, there's Tempora. That um, was it. Which is, Tempora is the uh, kind of massive... Um, attempt to, you know, have a time machine, hence Tempora, um, you know, to, to, to have a huge time machine for internet um, records, if you like, and to be able to search through them and, uh, as you say, uh, do, do pattern matching and correlation within that data. So, yes, uh, that's it. I should say they are also doing uh, some things a little bit like this, which are an extension, but essentially they are uh, saying they want to keep internet connection records for the police and law enforcement in general for 
more ordinary sorts of criminal activity, uh, not specifically serious crimes, not specifically national security, just whatever the police feel they need to investigate. So is this and, a pre-made, is this a pre-made dossier on every citizen of what they've done? Yeah, so, absolutely. And it, I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, it's, what it is, is it's all of your movements from your mobile phone, all of your, it's uh, who you've been, you know, what services you've been using on the internet, um, plus your uh, phone call records, all of that for 12 months uh, with a query engine, a search facility to do real, you know, to do um, mapping between individuals, uh, you know, social graph sort of mapping should the police want it. So uh, it's not just that your records might be requested, um, it's that your records can be compared and the same can be done across the population. So if the police wanted, they would have the ability to say, let's get everybody in Birmingham who was in the Lamb pub because uh, we know they were uh, planning a protest in that pub. And that might cause us some inconvenience when these people uh, end up, uh, you know, meaning that we've got to put police out on the streets to uh, deal with the protest. So let's just see who all the people are. And then maybe we can compare them with uh, anarchist websites uh, visits to see which of the uh, ringleaders this protest are anarchists and therefore particularly troubling. We've we've seen similar notions here in terms of uh, the active disruption of protests by placing government officials undercover inside them, particularly the Occupy Wall Street protests um, five six years ago, where uh, where. You know, it was often discovered in hindsight that those agitating for the most violent action were, in fact, doing so on behalf of government to create a to create an excuse for disruption, sometimes violent disruption of the gathering and the discussion. Um, is this uh, is the, is is similar prevention of open protest expected to be part of the goal? I mean, I'm not saying so explicitly. I just think uh, you have to look at what the police do around these activities when they have the powers. I mean, surveillance powers, yeah, they, they will be used for, uh, you know, things like uh, maybe gun crime or drugs busts. Yes, they will be used for that. And you can see why these sorts of search tool would be incredibly useful for them in, in that sort of circumstance. Um, at the same time, you know, they will use surveillance powers for political, uh, pro, you know, for political policing purposes. They have done some very similar things to the things you just described in the UK. Um, they, there's been a lot of uh, scandal about uh, the use of undercover uh, cops in uh, investigations because actually they've turned out to be, uh, you know, having relationships. Uh, with people, and they they were in groups for you know many many years. You know, and they often established you know um, relationships with uh, other protesters in order to kind of give themselves credibility within these groups. You know, if you're you know somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend, then it's uh, much less. You know, surely you should be a lot more trusted. That, that kind of logic, I think, was used. 
Um, but of course, uh, you know, ha- having sex uh, with somebody who doesn't even know who you really are, uh, and then disappearing after a certain amount of time because you know your mission has ended, uh, there are incredibly um, serious ramifications for that. Um, not to mention ethical issues. Uh, it's just just a traumatic thing to do to somebody. Uh, so, I, I think there's a that, sort of hierarchy of. Uh, what it is you're trying to prevent. I think if we, you know, if we look at history, I think we all accept that, for instance, in true espionage, where the fates of governments and soldiers uh, are are at stake, that's sort of, you know, that that's okay. Yeah. That's viewed as a bit of tradecraft of espionage. But if what we're talking about is just suppressing political dialogue, uh, it really seems that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. No, and the major motivation for doing this has, has been, repeatedly been things like uh, estimation, you know, knowing how many police you need to put into a demo or preventing economic harm from, you know, occupation of economic resources. So, you know, th- that, that really, that's just money. You know, that's just saying we don't want to put 5,000 police down when we only need 100 Right. Or we don't want, you know, we we or we don't, you know, we don't want a power station to be closed for two weeks because it will cost the company a lot of money. So where uh, are so, where are the corporations in all this? We've occasionally seen we've occasionally seen corporate pushback, for instance, from service providers saying, uh, from service providers saying, if you're going to require me to keep that much data, you better pay me to do it. Uh, or Verizon charging money for uh, you know cell phone wiretaps, wire sometimes quite profitably. Um, so as Snooper Charter, as Snooper's Charter is being discussed, uh, what what has been the reaction from corporations to all of this? Well, I think um, a certain amount of resignation, to be honest, and uh, they you know they they're mostly there trying to. Um, make sure that they're not adversely affected. So they want to be paid for keeping data if that's what's being done. Um, with the sort of hacking customers stuff, they want to make sure there's, there are some means of them appealing and not being forced to do things which are entirely unreasonable. Um, so that there is pushback. Um, but, you know, I think, I think to be honest, they've been a bit cowed. You know, they're a bit frightened. They're a bit, um, they feel like th- there's just not enough political room for them to uh, try to get the things that they really want and need. So, you know, that that is, there, there are some very big problems. I think the US companies are a little bit more robust than the, the UK companies in some ways, because uh, they don't want sort of extraterritorial claims. They don't want the UK saying to US companies that they're legally obliged to do things which are, uh, you know, very hard for them to do. Um, they don't want those sorts of arguments. So they've been trying to sort out some of those things that, so that government in the UK has to be a little bit more rational, not kind of to claim to, you know, ha- have these sweeping powers over overseas companies just because they're dealing with UK citizens. Um, so, you know, could you imagine that applied to uh, Chinese citizens or uh, citizens in Iran or something? You know, imagine if the Iranian or Chinese government went to an American company and said, "We want the data on these on our citizens. Uh, give it us." You know that that that's not a claim that companies can be expected to just accept. 
but that's kind of the argument the UK is making. Um, so I think I think you have to you know they have they have to resist because the principle is so awful. Uh, but yeah, the UK co- companies I think are they're finding this very hard, um, and uh, they're mostly trying looking for quite small concessions really. And um, the better the, the the bigger picture is that um, the idea that you simply collect information about people when they're innocent, when you don't have any particular interest in, in it. That is really highly contested in European law at the moment. There's been a particular concern of several um, legal cases um, at the European Union. Uh, so there is pushback. We've, and it may we've, be... That... We, we've watched the, the evolution of uh, the European right to privacy in particular, where, yes, these various legal regimes in, UK, uh, in EU member states are uh, slowly beginning to collide with that overarching privacy directive and 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 what yeah. it requests for citizens. We hope it will evolve in the right direction. We're always of two minds because as a provider of VPN services, uh, when governments behave badly, we get to make money by uh, you know uh, effectively smuggling information out for people that want uncensored internet. But uh, nonetheless, as people watching this fight. Um, you know, we we still think that the right answer is is open systems and transparency, and uh, really uh, a lack of a lack of tracking as much as possible. Uh, we wish that our product were not necessary, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I think. I mean, the thing is that um, there is always going to be a need for people to um, protect their privacy uh, from from various sorts of. Uh, third party. I mean, governments are not the only uh, actor here. And I think, um, you know, a lot of a lot of mobile companies, for instance, collect huge amounts of information about their customers web browsing. Uh, the same happens with uh, Wi Fi connections and so on. And that's kind of, it's kind of unreasonable behavior. They, they shouldn't really be allowed to do it, but they do. And of course, they, they get away with it because people sign ridiculously wide terms and conditions apart from anything else they press the i agree button without realizing precisely what these companies are trying to do and also a lot of the wi-fi providers in particular they they kind of want to do this in order to um tell the their the, you know the, the local customer if that's a shop or something like that you know how many customers have come back where they went around in the shops if they visited their store somewhere else in the country you know, they want they want to be able to provide them that sort of information that requires tracking, so they try it. Um, so I think you know VPNs and other tools like that are a good safeguard from those sorts of activities. Um, you know, which a lot of these these people are just going to try. It's very hard to stop it altogether. Um, we think so that the, you know, we think that the best mechanism for repeal or regulation of these sorts of things is the complete disclosure of the personal habits of those in power. Nothing <laughs> short of being bit by having, you know, having their, uh, you know, marshmallow ducky habit at Tesco's exposed is going to persuade <laughs> politicians that that privacy has any value or that, that uh, corporations and governments shouldn't be allowed to pile up full dossiers on everyone's habits. Uh, we well, we love to see those leaks because uh, at some point it is as we've seen in Iceland a little bit in the UK uh, you know when 
when the uh, when those in power have their personal habits exposed, you do occasionally get small moments of positive change. Well, thanks very much for talking to us today, Jim. It's always a pleasure to talk with those that are on the correct side of the debate, in our opinion, about uh, the evolution of privacy online and, and where this is all going. No problem at all. And yeah, great, great to talk to you as well. Lucky episode 13 next week features special guest Yaja Butler, privacy, surveillance, and security fellow at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Yaja and Josh take on privacy in the digital age, the relationship between national security objectives and civil liberties, and ways the government and the private sector can respond to evolving cybersecurity threats. As always, thanks to IPVanish VPN for sponsoring Secure Sessions.